My name is Manohar James, and I'm one of the ministers at uh, High Point Church, and I'm also trainer of pastors uh, in India. So some of you know me, and some of you do not know, but uh, uh, I'm here uh, serving um, the Lord alongside some of our staff here. And uh, we have been studying uh, the book of First Thessalonians um, and learning how Thessalonian believers have become and imitators of God and of apostles and became ensamples to others. And last week, Nick talked about how God desires holiness and how God defines holiness and desires sanctified life from us in our sexual morality. And in today's passage, Paul is talking about how we should love, live, and lead an exemplary Christian life before others. This is what he says in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Let me read that for us. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Paul is basically saying in this, the practice of Christian brotherly love is very, very important for a church so that the world will know who we are. And the second, he's talking about living a self-controlled, self-focused, in fact, life-focused living rather than meddling in others' business. And third, he's talking about leading a self-sufficient and God-honoring life through our work that we do in our day-to-day life. So what are the lessons that we can learn from this passage today? As Christians, we should grow more and more in our love towards others. Well, when Paul was writing this to Thessalonians, it was not a new message to them. In fact, Thessalonian church was an exemplary church which was practicing brotherly love in the way God taught them. But Paul is saying, you should practice it more and more because... It is love that defines our Christian identity. Not our baptism, not our membership in the church, not the symbols we erect or wear, not even our spiritual lifestyle. But it is love that defines our identity. Jesus told to his disciples in John chapter 13, Verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. 
As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus actually makes it so clear to his disciples that love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. It is the fingerprint of Christianity. By the way, it's not just us who practice love in the world. Love is taught and practiced by people of all religions. Even atheists, secular people practice love. But how are we different from them? Sometimes they do much better than we do. A couple of years ago, I taught a course called Christian Engagement with the World Religions to MDU students at Alliance Theological Seminary in New York. And at the end of every class, I used to take my students to one of the non-Christian religious center, like uh, Hindu temples, uh, Buddhist meditation centers, mosques, and so on, so that they could observe their rites, uh, their rituals and practices, and learn from them, and also see the difference that they have uh, in their faith. Well, it was a really great experience for my students to understand how they are different from others and how others are different from them so that they will appropriate the gospel to those people. Well, we happened to go to uh, a temple called Gurudwara. Gurudwara is a temple of Sikh uh, people. So when we went there, we were received as honored guests. And uh, after attending one of the services, uh, one of those guys took us all over the temple and showed us uh, the history of Sikhism and also uh, their belief system and so on. And at the end, they led us to Langar, which is the community kitchen where they serve food to everyone else. We never expected that they're going to give us food. So we went there, they asked us to sit down and they served us delicious Asian food. And even they washed our plates at the end. And then they called us to another room and they said, if you liked anything in this temple, please let us know. We'll pull that down even if it is a picture hanging on the wall and we'll give it to you. And then they gave lots of gifts to every one of us, even souvenirs that you know, we would like to keep. And that was so impressive. And one of the students asked, that older gentleman who took us around, what is your teaching? What is your core teaching? And then he said, well, we don't teach much, but we just show love. That's all we do. So it's a religion of love. Then at the end of the class, we were briefing, and I began to talk to my students, hey, tell me, what have you learned from this, and how are we different from them? And one of them casually said, well, they are Christians in a different form, and they do a better job than us. That really shocked me. And even in our conversations, that older gentleman of the temple told us, if any one of us do not have accommodation in New York City, they will house us for one week and feed us free of cost, no strings attached. 
What a beautiful thing to do. And they are existing there to just serve people and unite people irrespective of caste, culture, ethnic backgrounds. But how are we different from the people who are exercising, who are practicing brotherly love and then showing that to the world? And do we understand what does Bible say about brotherly love? That's why Paul emphasizes in this passage, saying, you should practice brotherly love in the way God has taught you. Not in the way the world teaches you, but in the way God. So here is, a, here is the unique uh, Christian love that we need to understand. If we don't understand this uniqueness of God's love or brotherly love in God's view, we will never be able to put it into practice. So it has a three-dimensional uh, view. One is what God said to Israelites, love your neighbors as yourself. Love your neighbors as yourself. It is a self-giving love. We need to love people in the way we love ourselves. In other words, until and unless we put ourselves in the shoes of others, we will not be able to adequately love people. Most of the times we objectively love people, we don't subjectively see them. How would they think? You know, if I am in their place. And the second dimension of love that we see is already in the text, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 and 12. He says, we should love one another in the way we would love our siblings. When Paul was trying to tell to Thessalonians about the importance of brotherly love, he actually uses the word Philadelphia. He's not referring to our state in this country. He's referring to Philadelphia, a Greek word which typically is used for blood brothers and sisters. So Paul is trying to say that we all become relatives in Jesus Christ. We are all redeemed by the same blood so that we should have the same attitude of equality, respect and care for one another as we love one another, even if we have differences existing amongst us. But do we really see anybody as our relative? In India, we have this culture of calling people uncle, auntie, brother, like that. Even elderly people we call uh, father. So that's why when you come to India, you have no clue who is a real uncle, who is real father. Everybody has 10, 15,000 uncles and aunts. And even Jason, my son, used to call everyone uncle and all. Um, but now he's becoming more American. He's not using what we are trying to teach. But here, the idea is like we how to see everyone as a sibling. That is the love that we should show. And the third dimension that we should look at is self-sacrificial love. In fact, John puts it in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 16. How we supposed to exercise this self-sacrificial love. This is what 
it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is the highest standard of love. What do we do when we think of love? We love people who look like us, who are friends with us, or who think like us. But that is not the way the, the love, brotherly love, is supposed to be. The brotherly love is supposed to have these threefold things when we think of loving others. Love as yourself, love as your siblings, and finally love as Jesus has loved. If you don't understand this threefold love, you will never be able to understand what Paul is trying to say about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, does not keep the record of wrong things, does not delight in evil, Rejoices in the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves, never fails. Wow, this is like 16 items there. And I was really thinking about what does it mean to me as I was preparing this message and I was really pausing and reflecting. And then I was thinking if I ever loved a person in my life, with at least half of these qualities. And I was kind of sad because my love is so superficial, shallow. It doesn't reflect any love that we see here. This is the case with many of us. Some of us are loving in the way the world loves, then we think we are having the Christian brotherly love, which is not true, we are deceiving ourselves. In a world of self-centeredness, ethnocentric pride and individualism, it's so hard to manage Christian brotherly love. So we should be on guard against all vanity and apathy and press towards goal of showing the very DNA that God has placed in us through Jesus Christ, the very fingerprint that he has put in our souls, that is love. You know, worshiping God and coming together um, in fellowship and doing a lot of voluntary work for God holds no value if we do not do this brotherly love before others, if we do not show this brotherly love before others. Well, let's move on. Now, this brotherly love reveals how much we love God. Our relationship with people affects our relationship with God. Sometimes it's so easy to come and say, Lord, we love you, in the church settings. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John says, for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So the only measure that you love God is in your love for one another. That is the only measure we have. We can't love God if we cannot love our brothers and sisters. And it is so easy to love God because he does not sit with us at dinner table. 
He does not discuss with us. He does not criticize us. And he does not debate with us. So it's so easy for us to love God rather than human being. Sometimes we love babies, cats, dogs, and birds, not just because they're adorable. We love because they don't debate with us. <laughs> they don't hurt us. They don't discuss with us. They don't say, yeah, that is wrong. No, that's why we love them. And we are more close to them rather than human being. It is difficult for us to deal with people who are different from us, but brotherly love has this aspect of self-going, self-giving, seeing everyone as if they are the household members of your own family, and you become like Christ for them, the way Christ has laid his life for the church. You have to give your life to them. You know, I went to school in Kentucky. There is a village called Shaker's Village. Some of you do not know who is Shaker's. Shaker's means they're Quakers, right? Like Pentecostals. And now it's only a historical site. Uh, no people, because most of the Quakers did not believe in marriages. So now it has just become a place that people come and visit and talk about the history. But they were very godly people. They actually believed in the imminent coming of Jesus Christ and also practiced gospel love. And in fact, they are very hardworking people in that part of the world and you know, anywhere they are. And they actually cultivated lots of uh, fruits and vegetables and they never lacked anything. But unfortunately, when they went to that place near Wilmore, um, they had lots of land where they cultivated and lived a self-sufficient life, but they had a problem with neighbors. Neighbors used to come and steal fruits and veggies on a constant basis. So they don't know what to do, but they never made a complaint to the police. And even they never dealt with these stealing people harshly. But there were other neighbors who were fighting with these poor neighbors who have been stealing from their property as well. So one of those neighbors who were also Christian came to these Quakers and asked, how do you deal with this such a troubling people who are stealing your fruits and vegetables on a daily basis? We are struggling to keep up with what we are doing. You tell us the secret. How did you deal with them? And their quiet answer was, well, we planted more crops. We cultivated more land so that they don't suffer. They don't struggle. What a love is that? That is called gospel love. And I was shocked to hear that story that they had more land cultivated for people who were poor. They haven't seen them as stealers. They haven't seen them as people in need. That is the three-dimensional love to be practiced. I'm not supporting the stealing or thieves, robbers. We need to go and encourage them. But I'm saying how we supposed to love our people. 
Unfortunately, the brotherly love that Bible talks about is missing in the churches. It has become a slogan more than a reality in many churches today. We have this denomination, denominational barriers. We have this doctrinal barriers to love people. We only try to love people who hold our own doctrine, our own kind of legalities in the church. And we only go after people who like our philosophy and agree with everything we say. But if we do like that, we are no different from the way the world practices its love. So when we embody Christ's love, we resemble Jesus more than we resemble ourselves. You know, when you try to love, you don't have to think you are doing something for the good of others, but you are actually trying to resemble Jesus. This is what Francis Schaeffer told in his little book, The Mark of the Christian. If the world does not see this down-to-earth practical love, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. The world has a right to question whether I'm a Christian. And more than that, let me say it again, if I'm not willing to do this very simple thing, the world has a right to question whether Jesus was sent from God and whether Christianity is true. Now, you know, we have this apologetical mind. We wanted to prove rebuttally, ontologically, psychologically, theologically. We wanted to prove that Christianity is true. But now here, Francis Schaeffer is saying the simple thing that you can prove that Christianity is true, that Jesus Christ has been sent to the world by God is just the love that we're supposed to show that people will just walk in. Let's move on. The second thing Paul teaches in this passage is that we as Christians should make it an ambition to live a self-control focused life rather than meddling in others' business. You know, after encouraging Thessalonian believers to love people more and more, he quickly switches on to say that they should not mind others' business, but rather mind their own business. It sounds like he's asking them to have an ambition, to have no ambition for others, which is not what he's trying to say. In fact, in chapter 5, he is saying you should get into other people's lives and help them. If they're idle, warn them, and if they're discouraged, encourage them, and edify them, and raise them up. So here, Paul's idea of asking them to mind their own business was to caution them to safeguard themselves from the danger of creating problems for themselves and also for others in the body of Christ because the world has been closely watching these converts in the church. So Paul hoped that by maintaining a low profile from political discussions and social discussions, they would avoid further trouble for themselves. In fact, I come from a gossip and shame culture where people are ashamed of talking about their own problems but not ashamed of talking about others' problems. I was so glad when I came to the United States because I haven't experienced much of it in social settings or private settings. And I thought 
oh, it is only Indians who gossip. Thanks to the social media, which has revealed the human nature, <laughs> sinful nature. It has revealed all this wild nature, common across all cultures, irrespective of religious education, how good they are in their religious practices. So, as Christians, we're supposed to maintain a quiet life defined by love and self-control rather than distracted by others' matters. You know, always Peter comes to my mind, one of the disciples who has been distracted often. You know, he actually was rebuked more than any other disciples. You can, you can see that. But he was a wonderful man, though, but he was a nosy Christian. Knows the disciple, right? You remember when they were at the Last Supper? Jesus was altogether in a different mood. And then he was predicting that someone in this group is going to betray me. And that time, Peter tells to John, ask him who that is. I can't wait. Right now, I wanted to know the answer. I mean... Jesus hasn't finished talking yet. But he wanted to know. He's telling John, ask Jesus, who is that? And in fact, Jesus was saying that he's going to be betrayed. And he said, I'm going to a place that you're not going to follow me. And then Peter tells, I will follow. And then Jesus says, well, you can't go where I'm going, but you will follow me later. He's actually referring to the death that he's going to die. And in John chapter 21, there is a discussion about how Peter is going to deny Jesus Christ. And then Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me the way I love you? And then he tells, I just love you, Lord, as a friend, not as agape. Anyway, he breaks down, and then finally, Jesus commissions him to take care of the flock. And after commissioning him with that mission, Jesus tells that he's going to die. In a way, others are not going to die. You know, Peter was crucified upside down, right? In that serious discussion, Peter looks at John again. I'm not talking about John Sekotowski, okay? So he looks at John, he's distracted, and then he tells, what about him? And then in chapter 21, verses 21, he tells, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? Peter, you must follow me. You know, Jesus declines to satisfy the carnal curiosity of Peter. Sometimes we have this carnal curiosity towards others to know what's going on in their lives. Each one of us have this Peter's mentality in us. Sometimes I get distracted when I look at poor people, how they manage their finances and their jobs. And sometimes I get distracted when I see homeless people in the streets with play cards. When my compassionate heart draws myself close to them, my criticizing heart pushes me back from them. 
Then I drive past by, and then I immediately begin to think, why do these people stand all day long? Why can't they go and work? And even I wasted a lot of my precious time discussing about these homeless people. One day as I was passing by one of the homeless person, my inner voice said, it looks like you're so concerned about the homeless people. Why don't you go and sit down with one of them, discuss about their struggles and issues rather than talking about them with others. And again, inner voice said, if you can't do that, the best solution for you is to shut up and mind your own business. I realized that my false obligation and carnal curiosity doesn't help the person in actual need. You understand what I'm saying? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, when people are not busy with their own business, they had become busybodies, meddling in others' matters. When people meddle in others' matters, they become too judgmental. When they become too judgmental, they can't truly love people in the way God has loved them in the way God has taught them to love. I'm telling you, if you really love people, you will have no time to meddle in their lives, and you will not do that. If you are meddling in people's lives, you cannot joyfully love anyone. My piece of advice to you, if you are a nosy Christian like me, don't waste your time meddling in others' business. If you put too much time on others' matters, carnally, you might run out of time for yourself. So think about that. Now, minding one's own business does not mean distancing from others. Now, you need to be careful about that. Sometimes you think this is advocating social distance so that you can avoid trouble or you will have fear of damaging somebody's life. That's not what he's saying. He's not even saying that we should ignore what's going on in, in others' lives. As much as we are called to mind our own business, we are also called to mind others' lives so that we can invest in their lives. But it has to be a spiritual, God-oriented love. So the simple message here is that if you want to love and help people, get into their shoes. Don't get behind their back. If you want to help people, get into their shoes. Don't get behind their back. And then if you're too distracted with what they are up to, the best solution is to mind your own business. Now, the third thing that Paul is saying in this uh, passage is that we should lead a God-honoring, people-caring lifestyle through work. One of the ways that we glorify God is through our work. By the way, Paul is not condemning unemployment as such. 
He is only referring to idleness and laziness in the community. He was emphasizing that Christians should be keen to earn their own living in order to support themselves and support others. You know, one of the reasons Paul is raising this issue because some of the people in the church were concerned that if they work manual work, they will be treated like slaves because manual work only fits slaves during that time. While others thought, anyway, Jesus is going to come soon. Why should I waste my time working? So they were kind of, you know, not working at all. And then there is another group who are kind of exploiting the love of others. Anyway, even if we're poor, we are not going to suffer because others are going to take care of us. So Paul is kind of encouraging these people to not to depend on anybody, but gain their own living and respect. By the way, why should we work? Here is the biblical perspective of work. Work matters to God, not just to people. Remember, work matters to God. There are three reasons why work matters to God. First one is, it is God's purpose for man to work. In the very first pages of the Bible, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Even before the worship, the work comes. You know? Now, after creating Adam and Eve, he did not put food on the table, but he had provided them a field for them to work. So work is not the result of sin or disobedience as we sometimes think. Work came before the fall. And in fact, Adam and his children, they showed their obedience and love to God through their work. And even in fact, they worshiped through their work. So we have to see this as God thing to work. And second, it is a gift to man and we should rejoice in it. It's a gift. To work is a gift. We have to rejoice. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 22, Solomon says, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. That is his lot. You know, if you are not seeing work as a blessing and you feel tired of working, probably you are in a wrong place. Find a different work where you will enjoy. Third perspective is that God is working God. So we should follow his footprints. You know, I read Psalms 121 verse 4, that the maker of heaven, heaven and earth will neither slumb nor slumber nor sleep. And then Jesus again tells in John chapter 5 verse 17, my father is always at his work to this very day, I am also working. I sometimes feel like father and son are workaholic. They keep working. So we as God's children, we should also follow the footprints of God. So if you are not working, there is something wrong with you because you need to find out whether you are a child of God or somebody else. And by the way, Work affects you, others around you, and the kingdom. 
So don't think that you just work so that you can, you know, make money, get richer, and live a lonely, comfortable life, and move on with life. And that is not what it means here. We have to work so that it matters to us and it matters to people around us and also it matters to the kingdom of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says, we not only work for our self-sufficiency, but we may have something to share with others. Kingdom of God is advanced through your work. We have heard this saying, idle mind is devil's workshop. So once our mind becomes devil's workshop, you don't expect certain product to come out. Whatever devil decides, he'll bring out. That's why there are stealings, robberies, you know, killings and so on, because they're basically lazy. They don't want to really work. Let's work so that we can live with honor, full of grace, and help the kingdom of God. May we become the imitators of God and become example to others in the way we love, live, and lead our exemplary Christian life in the world. Amen. Shall we pray? Father, we are grateful to you for today that you ask us to love more and more, resembling you, resembling your spirit. And also, Lord, we want to focus more on the life that you have given to us rather than meddling in others' lives. Lord, we do not want to be distracted. We want to focus on you and follow you in the calling that each one of us have. God, I'm also praying that we will work just as father and son are at work so that the world may see that we are hardworking like the Quakers who had sufficient for themselves and also for others who are suffering. Father, help us to lead an exemplary Christian life so that we will make some men samples from outside so they will follow us and ultimately they are led to you rather than they are led to us and our philosophy. Help us, God, to love people more and more in a world full of bitterness, full of hatred, full of unforgiveness. God, I pray that you will turn us to be your children so that people see the very fingerprint which is unique to your church, that is love in and through our lives. Father, some of us still struggle with that as if nobody should tell us whom to love, whom not to tell. But it is your command, Lord. Help us to see it as a command to obey and please you in our obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.